0: You know, we saw at the beginning of Mark 13 last week that Jesus uh, entered into sort of a farewell discourse with his disciples. Uh, so he's just left the temple, uh, giving us some context here, he's, he's on uh, the Mount of Olives with his disciples, which is sits just east of the city of Jerusalem, just east of the temple. Uh, so so sitting there, they would have had a spectacular view of, of the temple itself. And and so seeing this remarkable view of the temple and then walking out of the temple as they were there for a few days, uh, the disciples were, were commenting on how astounding the temple itself was, which caused Jesus, if you remember from last week, to... to predict and tell them, listen, all these stones is, are, are going to be tumbling on top of one another. He, he foretold its destruction. And so he said to them, all the stones which comprise the structure of this temple, they're going to be thrown down, they're going to be destroyed. And so he was speaking, of course, about the destruction of the temple that would take place in the year 70 AD when the Roman general Titus uh, overthrew a Jewish uprising and, and marched in and destroyed the temple. This catastrophic event which Jesus speaks of here is really a We talked about last week this foreshadowing of Judgment Day. It's a foreshadowing or a type that we look to of of the events that are going to also surround his second coming to earth. Now, I I think it's good for us here to ask why. Why with just now a day or two before Jesus is arrested, which he he knows is coming, why does he enter into this, this rather lengthy discourse with his disciples about his second coming? I mean, they haven't even fully grasped the purpose of his first coming yet. And now he's already, he's talking about the, the return, his second coming. And So what, why here? Why, what do we do with this here? What's the purpose of this farewell address, this Olivet Discourse? Well, I, I want to hinge everything, the purpose of it all, the reason for it all, the implications of it all on what Jesus says at the end of verse 37. Let's look at what he says. and He says, I want to say to you, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is a command. It's an imperative. So, so hold on to this for a moment. Jesus is commanding us. He's commanding you. He's commanding me to stay awake, to not get lazy, don't get sleepy. Right? He, he's describing here a state of being. That we are to remain continuously in this state of watchfulness and in a state of yearning for his return. And that that we don't deviate from this. And so the the purpose of this, this farewell address here is to implore his disciples, to implore his followers, remain on mission. Don't get distracted. Don't live as if this is peacetime. This is not peacetime. He's saying this is wartime. Right, Jesus is building his church. He's expanding his kingdom. And as Matthew 16, 18 would would say, Jesus says that the gates of hell are not gonna prevail against the building of my church, But, but listen, the gates of hell are going to try to prevail. So 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 Jesus says, don't get off mission here. Listen, we know, we know Jesus wins. We know he wins. The story's written. He's king. He's victorious. We know how the story ends. It's written. His kingdom will be established. His enemies will be defeated. There is coming a day when death will be defeated, and that there's coming a day when the curse of sin is destroyed. But remember what we saw Jesus say last week He said that the, 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 the glory of Christ's kingdom, or, or the, the birth of this eternal reign, which is to come, is going to come through suffering through pain, through tribulation, through battle, and with persecution. So the church does not coast to the finish line. It strives toward it, right? Labors toward it, perseveres toward it with with grace-driven effort, with eyes fixed on Christ our King. So this here is a, a plea to the church from its Savior to stay awake, to be alert, to be on guard, and strive toward that finish line. Jesus is returning for his bride. So why are we to stay awake? Why are we to be vigilant? Why then are we to be watchful with this spirit, he says, kind of of yearning for his return and watchfulness of his return? Well, I think Jesus gives us three main reasons here as he wraps up this time with his disciples. Three main reasons why we're to stay awake, stay alert. Number one. Heaven and earth are fading, but God's kingdom is forever. That's verse 31, isn't it? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Heaven and earth is, is fading away as history progresses. Creation itself, even Romans 8 will tell us, is, is groaning, right? It's groaning more and more for its king to return. It's groaning for, for its king to return, its maker to return, its creator to return, to restore creation back to how it was meant to be. That creation is longing for this return back to Eden, where life was how God intended it to be, good. And so as history is progressing toward that day of, of its final redemption, that Jesus is saying there's going to be more persecution. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be even cosmic upheaval here. So, so jump back with me then to verse 24 when he says, but in those days after that tribulation, really quick, just so we have context here, Jesus is, again, he's using the destruction of the temple as, again, a foreshadowing of events that are surrounding the second coming. So, so just as with the, the temple destruction in 70 A.D. and the, the suffering and the tribulation and the persecution and the violence that surrounded it, that's going to be a, a type of what precedes the coming of Jesus when he comes to gather the church to himself. But but as he's leading on here, it's going to be far more destructive because he's saying here the heavens and earth are beginning to to dissolve. With, With the destruction of the temple, we saw the stones being tossed to the ground, but here Jesus is saying the stars themselves will fall from the sky. So Jesus is now looking ahead here to his return and the events that surround it. And so he goes on in verses 24 and 25 saying that the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be, will be shaken. This is referring to the, the natural universe. The created universe itself will, will begin to, to dim, to say it lightly, as, as God the Son comes in power and in glory to judge the earth, creation itself will be rocked by it and will be greatly shaken. The book of Revelation affirms these words of Christ as well. In Revelation 6, verses 12 through 14, speaking of this day, says, "...when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place." Just as we saw in the first part of Mark 13 with this destruction of the temple, we're seeing here this cosmic upheaval that takes place as the king of kings arrives to judge and to establish his eternal dominion, his kingdom. Jesus' says, great suffering, persecution, tribulation precedes his return. And so why stay awake? Why fix our eyes on Christ Because just as the magnificent temple in Jerusalem was brought down to rubble, so the earth itself is not meant to be our place of, of hope and comfort. Earth here as we see it in these verses dim to a formless gray. The sun in all of its brilliance, he says, is dark and the moonlight fades to nothing. The stars in all their glory, they fall from their place in the sky and all the power that we observe in the universe is shaking and trembling before its creator. And all that have risen up against Christ in this moment and rebelled against him are going to run in terror as he comes in power, as king of kings and lord of lords and in might and glory to judge the earth. Listen more to Revelation 6. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves. And among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? I Man, what a stark contrast Jesus gives us here in Mark 13. Two competing kingdoms. The kingdom of the world, the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of this world, the heavens and the earth, they, they fade into the background, they tremble and shake before their maker. It's Christ, the king comes in power and in glory and in might. Verse 26, "And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. What is this moment? What is this moment here in verse 26? This is the moment of Christ's visible return to Earth. At Jesus' first advent, a star lit up the sky. At the second advent, the stars fall from the sky. And Jesus says all will see the Son of Man, the divine judge of all the earth, this great eschatological figure described in Daniel 7, the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And so I'll ask again here, what is this moment? I believe this is is a return to Eden, a return to Eden. Let me explain. The Garden of Eden, which God created in Genesis 1 and 2, was a The place where heaven and earth met. It was a place where God dwelt with his people. God dwelt with his creation. Creation dwelt with its God. It was how life was supposed to be. It was how it was intended to be. It was a place where God's presence resided. But man rebelled in Genesis 3. He was deceived. And because of humanity's rejection of God, right, he was cast out of Eden. They were cast out of Eden. But a promise was made in Genesis 3 that there was coming a day when someone would come to restore Eden, right, when a Messiah would come to restore mankind's relationship with God so that humanity could once again dwell with him. So the story of Scripture from that point forward unfolds who this Messiah, this Rescuer, who this Savior would be. And as it continually progresses toward the revealing of Jesus as that Messiah, we see even though in the storyline of Scripture up until that day, even before Jesus stepped foot onto this earth, God's continued desire to dwell with his people. We see God's desire for his people to be in his, his presence as unholy as they are, he still sought ways to provide so that they could dwell still with him. So Jesus saying that the Son of Man is coming in the clouds, not through the clouds, but in the clouds, and in great glory, that's significant. Don't miss this. In the book of Exodus, as God leads his people out of slavery in Egypt, how is he leading them? Look at Exodus thirteen twenty one through 22. It says, And the Lord went before them by day in a p- pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a, p- a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. In Exodus 33, whenever Moses would, would meet with God, he would go outside the camp and he set up this, this tent of meeting, is what it was called, and it was there that, that he would He would commune with God. He'd be in the presence of God. But what do we see whenever the presence of God met with Moses? Exodus 33, 9 and 10 says that when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door because they were in the presence of a holy God. As he progressed through Exodus... God gives specific instructions in the, the building of the tabernacle. I, I don't have time to even go into this, but there's so much symbolism be, be, between how the, the tabernacle was constructed and, and the different components which, which made it that, that symbolize even Eden. But, but in this tabernacle, a place was, was, was instructed to be built where, where God would dwell with his people In the innermost room, a room called the Holy of Holies, it was a place only the high priest could enter once a year to atone for the sins of of God's people. But as, as they constructed this tabernacle, as Exodus ends, you see something take place as soon as the tabernacle is finished. In Exodus 40, it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. See, the presence of God was seen in Exodus in in a pillar of cloud by day, and the Shekinah glory of God, the fiery glory of God by night. And Jesus says here on the day of of my return, all are going to see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He's bringing with him the presence of God, the return of Eden where heaven and earth meet, life as it was intended to be. Jesus is returning a second time to bring Eden back, meaning this, an end to sin and suffering and pain and disease and poverty and injustice and death, that the world is going to be restored. He's coming to gather all those who belong to him, those who have suffered for his name, suffered at the hands of those who reject God. He's gathering men and women from every corner of the globe, people from every tribe and every nation and every language. Like What a glorious truth to behold here. Our king is returning for his people. It's a reason why we stay awake. But a second reason to stay awake and alert is because the time is drawing near. Look at verses 28 and 29. He says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Now, how many of us here get excited when we see trees beginning to bud, right? Like, I do. Like, here's why. Because winter is finally kind of in the rearview mirror, right? Because when we see that, we know spring is coming, and so Jesus tells his disciples here, look at the fig tree. It was, the fig tree was one of the only few trees in Israel that, that actually lost its, its leaves during the winter. So at this season when Jesus is, is speaking with them, these fig trees were beginning to, to bloom, beginning to bud again. So, so they had this visual illustration that they could look at and see what he was trying to say because he's saying warm weather's coming because we, we see the fig tree beginning to bud so, so he's saying, learn the lesson from this tree, right? The, the affairs in world history, specifically things that are mentioned in verses 14 through 25, are going to be signs that the, the end of the age is, is near upon us. That the return of Christ is near. That these things will tip us off, that the Son of Man is soon returning. Now just like the events preceding the destruction of the temple will signal that's near, we see in verse 30... He says, truly I say to you that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, I I see the clock, but here's here's where Mark 13 gets difficult, gets difficult, right? What, What generation is Jesus talking about? And, and how you interpret other parts of Mark 13 is going to influence how you, how you answer that question. And so, like I said last week, this is going to be where humility and, and charity come in. Uh, we've got to wrestle through these things and, and, and understand that this is complex. I've, I've studied through uh, multiple books and commentaries over the past week or two. And and there's varying responses from trusted sources, people that I listen to and and like to hear what they have to say, and they're kind of all over the map in this. So there's complexity here. But really quickly, in the first half of Mark 13, Jesus is describing, I believe, the destruction of the temple and the events that are leading up to it. So to me, as I wrestle through this, it, it makes sense to me that he's referencing these things quote, unquote, in verse 30, he's referencing once again, I think, the, the events that are surrounding the temple destruction, events that did happen in the disciples here Lifetime. They witnessed it. They saw that. But I, but I do think at the same time, I believe we're trying to keep in mind that, that there will be a, events surrounding Christ's return. Like he speaks of in verse 24 and 25, they're going to signal again the nearness of his return. And so, like his instruction given to the disciples, were to remain alert and awake. I think that's why I want to make sure we get across here, though. It's not to, to dig into the nuance of everything that, that's good and helpful, but to not miss the main point of what Jesus is trying to get across. Stay awake, stay alert, learn the lesson. There's going to be things that, that give evidence or signal of, of my nearness. So however you interpret this section of Jesus' words, r- remember one thing that unites all of us, that should unite all of the church of Christ. That our reason for vigilance and alertness is is not because we've figured out the correct time frame and nuance of everything going on here. Like it's good to wrestle through those things. I've, I've, I've really enjoyed studying this out and reading differing views. It's helped me to better understand and appreciate the scriptures and the complexity of it and the need for grace and the spirit of God to illuminate it to me. But what we rest in as followers of Christ is the truth that Jesus is returning. And his return is nearer now than it was when Jesus first spoke to his disciples. And what we hang our hope on is God's enduring word, his truth. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So what he says will come to fruition. If he says he's coming back for his church, he's coming back. So stay awake. Be alert for his return. Lastly, we stay awake because, number three, we, we don't know the hour of Christ's return. He, he makes that so clear in verse 32 and 33. But concerning that day or that hour, so again, he's, he's, he's shifting back, talking about his, the return or the, the coming of the Son of Man. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake for you do not know when the time will come. This can be a, a, a troubling verse for us as, as well if we don't fully grasp and understand the beauty of the incarnation of Jesus. That God the Son, Scripture says, laid aside his glory. That, that God the Son, Philippians 2 would say, he was born in the likeness of men. So though Jesus did not surrender his deity, he did take on the limitations and weaknesses of mankind. So, so Jesus got tired. He was hungry and thirsty. It explains why he could be killed on a cross. And so when he says here that not even the son knows, but only the father, we're, we're seeing a picture of Jesus' humanity here. He didn't know the exact moment of his return here as he was speaking to his disciples, but yet he was trusting his Father. And he knew that he was returning for his people. But man, as we wrestle through that even, like there's mystery there, isn't there? Like how did Jesus know some things and not others? I don't know. I don't know. But this is a beautiful picture of Christ's humanity. That he became weak so that we could become strong that he took on himself the curse of sin so that we could receive through faith his righteousness. At Jesus' first coming, he didn't come bringing judgment. No, he took judgment upon himself on the cross. At Jesus' first coming, as he was nailed to the cross, he experienced and endured God's wrath, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? So that we could receive through faith forgiveness instead of judgment in God's presence instead of absence and distance and condemnation. But we also learn here from Jesus that we will will never know or be able to pinpoint the exact date and return of Christ. Only God knows. So what do we do? What is our charge? What is our responsibility? Be watchful. Be alert. Verse 37, stay awake So I want to wrap up our time here this this morning by answering two questions. What does it mean to stay awake? And then secondly, what comfort does the return of Jesus give us? The answer to the first question is that the return of of Jesus, as I said, is is a return to Eden, meaning it's, it's a return to mankind dwelling with God in a world that's free from suffering and pain, hostility, sin, war, and death. And then that first, there must be then a yearning then in our hearts to see Jesus as the true treasure, as our true delights, and as our true eternal hope. So the return of the Son of Man that Jesus paints for us contrasts greatly, as I said, against the competing world system of the world itself. And so if we are not, as followers of Jesus, proclaimed followers of Jesus, if we're not yearning for the return of Christ, then that means that you have grown far too comfortable with the kingdom of this world. Staying awake doesn't mean that every second of our day is, is consumed with us asking, is it now, is it now, is it now, is it now, is it now? That, that's not what it means to stay awake or anticipate or yearn for the return of Christ, but it does mean that we live with a daily anticipation, a daily hope, a daily yearning for the return of Christ. That when we see the brokenness of this world, that should should stir within us a, a prayer of, Jesus, come back. Because we're looking at life as how it's not meant to be. If we're going days and weeks and months and even years without any anticipation or yearning for Christ to return, then clearly you're far more fixated on this world and not on the one to come. And so staying awake means living in anticipation. It means living on mission now. This is wartime, not peacetime. Peacetime's coming, but to get to peace, we have to endure the battle. We're Christ's church. The church is an outpost of the kingdom of God, meaning, meaning how we live gives evidence of what the kingdom of God should look like. So so that's why scripture is so abundantly clear on how we live with one another, right? That we that we are to serve one another and love one another and care for one another and, and serve our neighbor as we and love our neighbors we love ourselves, and then send people joyfully and gladly and earnestly and zealously. We want to send people out for the advancement of the kingdom, right? We say what needs to be done to be an outpost of the kingdom, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world in need. Though we do, those do so imperfectly, right? We are an imperfect body of, of believers here, which is why we need the gospel of Christ. But the way in which we are to live as an outpost of the kingdom of God should, should be like a snapshot of what life in the presence of God under his good reign and rule will look like. And, and, and when the church lives that way, that becomes a, a, a sweet-smelling aroma, right? It becomes intoxicating to a, a world because it, it's living, we're living so counterculturally. So, so, this is how we're to live. But also, I want to answer the question of what comfort should the return of Christ give us? You know, one of the questions in the, the Heidelberg Catechism, which was completed in 1563, it asked this question What comfort is it to you that Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead? Here's the answer I love this that in all distress and persecution, With uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his elect to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. Isn't that what we see in verse 27? That He gathers all who belong to him all those whom he has saved and redeemed by his blood, by his grace. And through Christ's return, when he comes to judge the world, we who have been saved by grace no longer need to fear that judgment because we are no longer under God's judgment, no longer under his condemnation, because Christ has taken our condemnation upon himself. And so now we, with that truth that we rest in eagerly, then await the return of our King. And we live then in this present age with hope and in a a pursuit of holiness. This is Paul's word to Titus as I close. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Church, stay awake. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning praising you for the truth of your return. So, so Father, forgive us when we argue or battle over things that aren't as significant and we miss the main point. God, may we be students of your word and, and studiers of your word. We need to know it. But God, help us not to miss the, the main point, the main aim that you have for us. And that is that, that very clearly you have, you have said you are returning for your bride. Right? And so, so, Father, because of that truth, that, that now if you sent your son 2,000 years ago to pay the penalty for our sin, to provide the way for us to be made right with you, now we eagerly await his second return when he will restore all things to how they were meant to be. You've provided the way. Now we're asking you to, to bring in the consummation of, of, of all human history to restore your world back to how it was meant to be, to, re- to bring your people once again into your presence where we walk with you and commune with you. And so God, help us as, as your people to yearn for the day, long for the day, eagerly anticipate that day, but until that day, to pursue holiness, to put sin to death, to be eager to, to send and to go for the cause of the gospel to go to the ends of the earth where, where Christ has not yet been named and to name him and to invite people into the joy of knowing who he is and to commune with their maker. So God, help us here to wrestle through these things and to confess and repent where maybe we fall short, to confess and repent where maybe we've grown far too comfortable with the kingdom of this world, which is going to pass away. And not keeping our eyes fixed on the kingdom of God, which endures forever and ever.